So outside of the parable uh, of, the, of the Good Samaritan, this is probably Jesus' most famous, par- most well-known parable uh, in, in all history. Uh, it has resonated and impacted people throughout history. Uh, one author said it like this, of all of Jesus' parables, this one is the most uh, richly detailed, powerfully dramatic, and intensely personal. Now, I said it before, we commonly call this the parable of the prodigal son. However, a more fitting title would be the parable of the prodigal sons. While the younger son has the most attention, uh, he's the one that did the most outward defiance and outward rebellion, the, younger, the older brother is not much different than the younger brother. He's just better at hiding it. Uh, and we'll look at that here as we get, as we get into the message. Uh, but the parable has been dissected, studied, and interpretations abound. Uh, but that really speaks to the richness of God's word. But tonight, we have to understand this parable has three main characters. We have the, old, the younger son, the older son, and we have the father. And I'll let the cat out of the bag. The constant in this entire story is the father by design. Now, as we look at the parable of the prodigal sons, we have to understand this is right in the middle of a series of parables that Jesus has been sharing uh, to the audience that he has before him. Uh, if you, we don't have it on the screen, but in, in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So you have to understand the context of this entire parable. You have the sinners and the publicans coming to Jesus, wanting to hear more about him, wanting to learn more about him. Uh, they recognize their need. They recognize something different about Jesus. And so they want to learn more about him. And then you have the other group, and that's the Pharisees. They're the religious elite. They're the people that think they're better than everybody else. They look at Jesus, and they look at the sinners and the, and the publicans, and they're like, Jesus, do you know who these people are? They're the sinners. They're the publicans. Why would you spend time with them? And so Jesus would tell three, in this chapter, Jesus would tell three parables. The parable, parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now we come to the parable of the prodigal sons. And so to understand what Jesus is talking about, you have to understand the audience he is speaking to. And so as we look here at the parable of the prodigal son, I want us to look at four truths this evening about the parable of the prodigal sons that paint God as a patient, loving God who runs to sinners to restore and to rescue them. Because again, the constant in this entire story is the Father, and that's by design. So number one this evening, but the title of the message, before we get to number one, the title of the message is When God Ran. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this. is actually a song. Uh, it's sung by a, a couple different uh, Christian groups out there, but it's a phenomenal song, When God Ran. Uh, it might be a little Southern gospel, but it's a great song. And so, uh, When God Ran is the title of the message tonight. So number one, as we study this parable together tonight, number one, when we decide to sin, we always deceive ourselves. When we decide to sin, we always deceive ourselves. Now, notice how the parable opens, verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that follow to me. And he divided unto them his living. So, understand this. Culturally, it was tantamount, this request of this son was tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you would drop dead right now. 
It's a pretty bold claim. The dynamic of this relationship is, is strained to the point where he demands that the inheritance be given to him. Now, understand this. Uh, generally, if you, have, if you had parents or you have parents that are saving up an inheritance, you don't get that until they die, right? Traditionally, that's how it's done. And so for the son to say this, the, the, the listeners that, are, that Jesus is talking to would have been shocked by this younger son's attitude toward his father. Children don't normally do such things for fear of severe consequences. <laughs> you don't respect your father in such a way. Uh, the, the result of such a request, according to the audience, remember who Jesus is talking to, the result would have probably been, oh man, this father is going to let his son have it. Sons don't talk to their fathers that way. Because... The result in that culture would have been a public shaming, dishonor. Or if you go to the Mosaic Law, that son could have been stoned for his rebellion. You go to Deuteronomy 21. Now, the first part was shocking. The second part would have floored everybody. Why? Because instead of the dad taking his son to the woodshed and straightening him out, the father lets him have what he requests. Think about that. He actually honored the request of his son. Now, no father in his right mind would have done such a thing. Again, the woodshed would have been the right way to go. And so, so far in these two verses, it says in verse 12, And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that followeth to me. And he divided unto them his living. He gives into it. This would have been dumbfounded even the most modern of sensibilities. What is going on here? We're learning a lesson here about the depth of sin. The, depths of, the depth of sin. We will discover that at its root, sin is deceitful. Because notice what happens. Verse 13. And not many days after the son uh, gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Verse 15. And when he went and joined himself to the citizen of that country, and sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. You see, at its root, sin is deceitful. The truth of, of sin, uh, 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 the truth of, this truth about sin is as old as the Garden of Eden. I mean, mankind's original sin was built, original temptation was built on a lie. Remember, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent came to Eve, what was the first thing he said? Yea, hath God said. Deceit. Deceit. Denial. Deceit. It says in James 1.14, But every man... When he is tempted, is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, at the Middah household, we have a woodchuck problem. We have one pet. His name is Domino. But I think our children have uh, adopted other pets in the forms of woodchucks. Now, they don't go out and pet them and things like that. That would be dangerous, and we don't allow that. We're not that kind of parents. 
But we have these woodchucks that kind of gather around, and we've found at least three holes where their houses are. And, you know, as, as, as kids, they like to name uh, the woodchucks. And so we have, we have Chuck. We call him Chuck. Uh, uh, we have not Chuck Kaufman, but we call him Chuck. Uh, and we have another one. That, uh, Chuck's the big one. And then we have a littler one, I believe. That's probably the mom, so we call her Chuckette. And there may be a younger, a younger woodchuck, and so we call him Chucky. You know, all these things. The kids have a blast with it now. My wife says, they're great out there. But if they get closer, you need to do something about it. Okay, so I started thinking to myself, well, what could we do? And the humane way of doing it uh, would be to get a trap. Would we not? You get to get a, uh, one of those caged rectangular, uh, cylinder, rectangular traps. Uh, and what do you do? You bait the trap, right? You look for what woodchucks like. You put it in there and you wait for good old Chuck to wiggle his way in there uh, and start uh, eating, of the, of the tra- uh, eating of the food or whatever it is, and then the back door closes. To entice Chuck, you've got to have some bait. Listen, that's exactly what sin does. It entices us. It baits us. It gets us the things that we know our flesh wants and our flesh craves, but we forget and we deceive ourselves into forgetting the consequences that come with those sins. It deceives us. Before we know it, we're reaping the whirlwind. We're reaping the consequences because that's exactly what this young man did. He's like, hey, as long as I get out from underneath my father, he gives me my living, he gives me everything that I, that I, I quote unquote deserve and I get away from him, things will be better. But notice he went out and spent it all. He blew all of his inheritance and then the famine comes. To the point now where he's feeding swine. Now remember the audience. Jewish people, publicans, sinners, Pharisees. What kind of animal was unclean? Swine, pigs, exactly. And so uh, the thought of, of a Jewish man going and feeding pigs was just amazing to think about. It was crazy to think about that it would come to that. But again, he was deceived. Because when we decide to sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, how did this, the the deceitfulness is manifested in these two brothers differently. First of all, and I touched on it, the younger brother was deceived by delusion of personal freedom. He was deceived by the delusion of personal freedom. What he thought was freedom from getting out from underneath his father's authority was the gateway to bondage, frustration, and loss. He thought life was better outside the loving protection of his father. What did he do? He squandered his living, he sowed to the flesh, and he ultimately shamed himself by feeding the pigs. Listen, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. That's why Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 3:13. The Bible says this, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through what? The deceitfulness of sin. Church, may we be careful not to buy into the delusion that personal autonomy or what we would call freedom apart from God is true freedom. It's not. It's bondage. Like in America, our liberty is not rooted in lawlessness, but it it flourishes within the confines of the laws of the land. 
Likewise, as Christians, we find that true freedom is found by living under the joyful obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus says this, then, Jesus, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free. True freedom is found within the confines of joyful obedience to Christ. Now, that's the, that's the younger son. When it comes to decisions of sin, when it comes to uh, deceit, he was deceived. The younger brother was deceived by the delusion of personal freedom. The older brother, we're going to get to him now just briefly. The elder brother was deceived by his own self-righteousness. Notice verses 28 and thir- through 30. We didn't, we, 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 we didn't read this far, but we're going to summarize it. Uh, notice this. This is uh, after everything is uh, the party is being thrown. The older brother finds out about it. And notice in verse 28, Jesus says this, and he was angry, speaking of the older brother, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said unto his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Can you, can, you, can, you sense, can you sense the sarcasm and the anger in his voice when he's addressing his father this way? Listen, the older brother was just as guilty as the younger brother. His list of deeds, except for two things that stand out. His list of bad deeds is not as long. He didn't go out and squander everything. But yet, his deception is much deeper. He refuses to acknowledge that he has his own inner guilt. He's deceived himself as well. And so, without letting the cat, I guess we can let the cat out of the bag. Who do you think the older brother refers to? In, in, in the audience that Jesus is talking to, who do you think the older brother refers to? The Pharisees, exactly. So when Jesus is addressing the parable here, he's got his audience, remember? We have to remember the audience. So, with the younger brother is the publicans and sinners. The ref- uh, it is a ref- reference to the publicans and sinners. The older brother is a reference to the Pharisees. Because is it not true the Pharisees, they were blinded by their own self-righteousness? They never saw their own inner guilt, even when Jesus would point it out point blank to them many times. Listen, he t- this older brother touts his own righteousness. He thought he deserved his father's favor because of just how good of a son he was. However, in touting his own righteousness, he reveals his own wicked heart. Notice how he addresses his dad in verse 29. He said, lo, these many years do I serve thee. It's almost like, dad, look, don't you get it? I've been faithful to you. I've done everything you've wanted. I mean, it just, it tinges with disrespect and how he addresses his father. He never showed any care for his younger brother. You never see the, younger, the older brother go try to find his younger brother. You never see that. You never see any kind of compassion of this older brother to his younger brother. At least dad was looking for his return. But what does this teach us? What does the older brother teach us? The deception of sin can come in many forms. Whether it's us trying to find freedom in life apart from God, only for it to shatter and leave us wanting, 
or the deception that because we toe the line, try to live a good life, participate in spiritual exercises, that somehow we have earned God's favor. We are deceiving ourselves. The first attitude of trying to live apart from God uh, really despises God's grace, while the other attitude uh, uh, of of self-deception frustrates God's grace. I cannot live to gain God's favor. God's favor is given to me by sheer grace. Each brother pictures a different type of sinner and and, and different types of reactions when they encounter a loving God. But notice this. Each time we find the brother come back, the father goes to them. Listen, God has come to the sinner. He's come to the deceived sinner. So number one, we have to understand that when we decide to sin, we deceive ourselves. But number two, and this is where the story really gets good. Number two, when we should be condemned, we are met with compassion. As we go back to the first scene, Jesus has painted quite a heartbreaking story, has he not? You got this father with a a son who who is a derelict, who's run away and squandered everything. And you got the other son who thinks that he's all good and great because he toes the line and he does what his dad wants. But we find the prodigal son, the younger son, destitute, defiled, disgraced, and dishonored. And now listen, remember the audience, as they're sitting here listening to the story, they're looking at this younger son and thinking he's getting exactly what he deserves. And rightfully so. But notice verse 17. Here, after, after uh, losing everything and, 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 and feeding the pigs and, and there's famine in the land to the point where he looks at the food and he's like, that's looking pretty tasty. Speak of the desperation of this man. The pig food's looking good. There's no Big Macs around. He's got the pig food and it's looking mighty delicious. Notice verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare and to spare and I perish with hunger. Now notice he came to himself. The idea uh, speaks of coming to his senses. He begins to look around. He's like, man, I have royally messed up. It's time to go back to dad. Listen, there was a family, we uh, had the opportunity several years ago to, it feels like several years ago, uh, we got the opportunity to go to South Carolina, North South Carolina, yes, uh, to Hilton, Hilton Head, Hilton Island, uh, to celebrate uh, my, my father-in-law's 70th birthday. And so we got all the families together. Uh, Rebecca's sister and her family were living in Massachusetts. We at the time were in Michigan. Uh, my in-laws lived in Tennessee. So we decided to all get together and go to South Carolina. Uh, and we had, a, a, we rented a, a, an Airbnb or something like that that. And the, the first thing that I remember about this vacation as we are pulling into this, this place to, to stay for a week, it literally says, beware of alligators. I'm like, what country did I land on? Like, beware of alligators? I'm from Michigan. The worst thing we have to worry about is maybe a rattlesnake. And now there's alligators and we've got pictures of alligators. It was great. Uh, and so uh, we all survived, believe it or not. But one of the, the hallmark of this place that we rented was there was a pool like with with the apartment with, with the with the it was like a three story Airbnb and they had a pool on the ground level, and so where did the kids always want to spend all their time? The pool, exactly. Now, 
Matthew was nine years old. I think at the time he was either six or seven. All week, Matthew was determined to dive into the pool. But Matthew was scared of diving into the pool. He thought if he dived in, he would never come back up to the surface. He thought he would drown, even though dad is standing right there. And so the entire time, I'm like, Matthew, jump in. And if you don't come up right away, daddy will reach down and I will grab you. But he was scared the entire week. And then finally, the last day before we had to go home, Matthew finally came to his senses. He had his little, the little rubber arm guard things that make you look super buff, buffer than you think you are. And, and he's going up there and he's like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Sure enough, he came to his senses. He came to himself and he dove in. Believe it or not, he didn't come back up. No, believe it or not, he came right back up. He came, he's like, well, I can do this again. And before you know it, he wanted to stay another week so he could just dive into the pool all day. Listen, he came to his senses. You know, look, the younger brother, the younger, the prodigal, the younger prodigal looks around. He's like, my dad's hired servants have it better than this. Maybe, just maybe, dad could bring, let me come back. Not as his son. That, in his mind, that was out of the question. Well, it's not going to happen. But maybe dad will let me come back as simply a servant. Listen, the first step toward repentance always begins with an honest look at yourself. Notice, he didn't try to reform himself. He didn't look for any kind of excuse to give for his actions. No, no, no. He simply, he didn't try to reform himself. He Rather, he embarks on a journey toward his only hope, dad. Now, the Pharisees within the crowd are waiting with bated breath for this moment. They're thinking, okay, he is royally messed up. And now he has the audacity to go back to dad. Oh boy, the Pharisees are licking their chops. They can't wait for the dad to just lay it down on him. They, they, they can't wait. And they totally anticipate that this son is going to get what is deserving. Because after all, the Pharisees looked at the sinners and the publicans as outcasts. Oh, they are going to get God's judgment. They're going to royally get it one day because of who they are. And so as the man begins to go back, the younger prodigal begins to come back to the dad. Notice verse 20. No, he begins to, re- I don't want to skip this. He begins to rehearse. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose. Verse 20, this is so key. He arose, came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What does that tell us? It tells us the father has been looking for him the entire time. And had compassion. And ran. And fell on his neck. And kissed him. Now. The Pharisees would have just lost it at this point. How could the father do that? How could the father show compassion? This boy deserved condemnation, but yet he's given compassion? They would have been dumbfounded with this. They expected just punishment and condemnation toward this wicked, sinful younger son. 
But a couple of things here when we talk about compassion instead of condemnation. It's the father who takes the initiative. Listen, the younger prodigal is coming home, but dad sees him. And instead of dad waiting for the son to come to him, the father begins to run toward his son. Uh, who ran? It wasn't the son. It wasn't the older son. It was the father. And one of the most amazing truths about salvation is that while we think we're coming to God, it's in fact God coming to us. John 6, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, the Father was waiting for his return. He was not waiting to scorn, to disapprove, or to condemn. Rather, he was hopeful and expectant that his son would return. Now, culturally, it was unacceptable for a father to run. Kids could run. Women were even permitted to run, but men did not run in this culture. Yet, in this emotionally charged moment, it is the father who humbled himself, the father who shamed himself by running and throwing his arms around this prodigal son of his. It was the father that took the son's contempt upon himself. And, 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 some, and, and some say that, you know, if the father was not going to mete out the punishment, it was actually the community's responsibility to do it. And so for the father to run to the son, to hug him and to shade him, he was actually protecting his son from retribution, from, from the community as a whole. But see, it's the father that took the initiative. Aren't you thankful that the father took the initiative? Because it's the Father's mercy that triumphs over the Son's deserved punishment. One of the great songs we sing around here is the song, His Mercy is More, right? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. If there is not a more fitting passage in the Bible for that song, it's this one right here. Because, again, the younger son deserved the punishment. He deserved the condemnation. He deserved all the consequences. He earned it all. But the Father showed him compassion. Why? His sins were many, but the Father's mercy was more. Friend, our sins are many, are they not? But God's mercy is more. While we stand condemned because of our sin, we're met with a compassionate merciful God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Uh, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had in our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the fl- desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Boy, we're in a predicament, are we not? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God. But catch this. Who is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he hath loved us. Uh, even when, even we, when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together by grace. Uh, by, with Christ, by grace are ye saved. But God, who is rich in mercy. Listen, while we deserve the shame, we deserve the condemnation, we deserve the humiliation. Just like this boy, he deserved it all. 
It was Jesus in mercy who took our shame and our humiliation upon himself. Consider Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Catch this, despising the what? The shame. You go back and you read the crucifixion account. Jesus endured an awful lot of shame, did he not? Mockings, beatings, whippings. You name it, Jesus went through it. But he did that for us. Why? Because we somehow deserved it? No, because his mercy was more. That's what the parable is trying to communicate. The younger son, he deserved all the condemnation. Because when we should have been condemned, we were met with compassion. So number one, when we decide to sin, we deceive ourselves. Number two, when we should be condemned, we are met with compassion. Number three, and I love this, when we should be forsaken, we are met with forgiveness. When we should be forsaken, we are met with forgiveness. Notice verse 21 again, and he rose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. So he begins to rehearse this, 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 uh, this conversation that he had back in the pig pen of how he's going to address his father. He said, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But as we'll see, the, he is, the father is going to freely forgive him. But in this, not only does the father compassionately offer mercy, but by embracing and kissing his son, he reconciles and restores him. The meaning of kissed here suggests a repeated gesture. Instead of the son kissing uh, the father, his, his father's feet in abject humiliation, it's the father who kisses his pig-stinking son. Because let's be honest, I don't think the son took time to really take care of himself, to clean himself up, to, to look presentable for dad. He just goes home. Because that's the only hope he has is home. And so for the father to run up, and defile himself essentially by touching his son who in the community's eyes was unclean and sinful. Listen, it, it took a lot on the father to do this. The open display of affection communicated something tremendous. It communicated to the entire village that the father had completely forgiven his son. Listen, the forgiveness was swift. The forgiveness was swift now, the passage we read, the son begins to rehearse what he was going to say to his father. Father, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've done wrong. I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. If I could just simply be your servant, I would be happy. And he was just going to plead to be one of his father's hired servants. Sonship was out of the question. He thought he had lost it all. But at least he could be a servant. But as the son begins to speak, the father interrupts him. And he calls his servants to the party. Verse 22, But the father said unto his servants, Bring hither the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. We'll get there in a second, a little bit more about that. But the son could not earn the father's forgiveness. Perhaps the son thought if he worked hard enough as one of his daddy's servants, that maybe his dad would eventually forgive him. But one of the most beautiful facts about God's forgiveness is that it is swift. 
It's unearned and it's complete. Consider Psalm 103, verses 10 uh, through 12. Uh, The Bible says there, uh, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. His forgiveness was swift. But then secondly, his forgiveness was sincere. For the father to go out of his way to humble himself by running to embrace his filthy pig-smelling son and initiate a celebration showed that his father was not pretending. He was sincere. He was full of joy that his son had come home. He fully restored him. He fully welcomed him back. He was sincere in his forgiveness. Friend, let me tell you. That the forgiveness of sins is our greatest need. But at the same time, it's God's greatest provision. The forgiveness of sin. The son had nothing that he could give to atone for his sins. But it was the father that freely forgave and held nothing good back from the prodigal. I love Ephesians 1.7. It says this, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Listen, God can only forgive our sins through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only hope we have. You know, I'm thankful that God ran to me on June 22nd, 1999 at Northland Camp, all the way up in Dunbar, Wisconsin, and forgave me. It wasn't anything I could do. But it's through his mercy that he gave. You know, listen, because of Jesus, we no longer stand condemned. Because of Jesus, we no longer stand forsaken. Because of Jesus, the stink of our sin has been washed and cleansed. And because of Jesus, we are accepted, forgiven, and restored to God. See, the Father did all that. Did the Son deserve it? Nope. But it's because of his mercy and because of his forgiveness. So number one, when we decide to sin, we deceive ourselves. Number two, when we should be condemned, we are met with compassion. Number three, when we should be forsaken, we are met with forgiveness. And then finally, number three, what began as a story of grief was changed into a time of gladness. Now, the father restores the son. Pick up in verse 22. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. There's a lot of rich imagery there, but for sake of time, we can't, we can't really go into that that much tonight. Verse 23, And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Listen, you'll notice a familiar trend in chapter 15. Every time what was lost was found, there was a party. Listen, the the, the, the Jewish people loved to party. They loved celebration. You know, maybe the next time, you know, someone gets saved in church, we should just have a root beer float night that night. I mean, let's just throw a celebration, right? The Jewish people love to celebrate. Uh, And so each time, whether it be the lost sheep return or the lost coin return or the lost son return, there is a party. 
Notice Luke 15, verse 7. I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Isaiah 35, verse 10, speaking of the future redemption of God's people. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. Listen, how was the celebration possible? How was even the forgiveness possible? Well, These are only possible with a tremendous cost. Forgiveness is costly. Either you demand that someone pays you, or you absorb the cost personally. Now, whose possessions are being used? Whose fatted calf? Whose robe? Whose ring? Whose shoes? Whose stuff is being used right now? The older brother's. You thought the fathers, the older brothers is. Because if you go back to verse 12, it says that the father divided them his living. So at this time, not only did the younger son get stuff, the older brother got his too. Now the father still oversaw the, 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 the use of these possessions, but at that time the older brother had his possessions. So in reality, the father's using the older son's stuff to celebrate the younger son coming back. Now let me explain why the older brother got mad. Why, get, Dad, why are you using my stuff to do this? The older son's kind of a party pooper, is he not? Why is he not excited that his younger brother's back? Dad, why are you using the stuff promised to me for this rebellious son of yours? Now the true colors of the older brother come out. He be, his self-righteousness begins to be unmasked. But again, think about the cost. Forgiveness is costly. What did it cost God to forgive us? His only son. His most prized possession. The most prized relationship he had was with his son. And he sent his son to die so we could be forgiven. Now remember the audience. The Pharisees are livid at this point. I can imagine. Their concept of how punishment should be meted out for people less righteous than them is being challenged. Their way of doing this is being upended by this teaching of Jesus. The other brother, he's on the outside. That's like, I ain't celebrating my rotten younger son for brother for coming back. I'm not celebrating. And yet people are coming into the kingdom of God during Jesus' ministries. And the Pharisees are like, what's going on? They're angry. They're bitter. They're mad. When really it was their responsibility to share the gospel. But they weren't doing it. But here's the crux of the parable and we're done. God runs to the sinner who has rebelled and turned away from him, his loving arms. But God also seeks the moral sinner who thinks he has no issues, who thinks he's good enough to merit God's favor. God runs to both of those types of people. Perhaps you're in here tonight. You think, man, there's no way I could get to where God could be accepted. God could accept me. That's the point. God's grace is what accepts us and what restores us. You think, you know, I I live a moral life. I I don't really, I try to keep the Ten Commandments and and I go to church and and all those things. And I I try to do what's right. I try to cross my T's and dot my I's. Listen, for all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. But see, God seeks to reconcile you as well. And guess what? We're called to do that, called to share the good news with both types of sinners. Whether it be the, the outwardly rebellious sinner or the outwardly moral person who thinks they're good enough. Listen, we're called to share the gospel with them. But notice how the story ends. It kind of ends rather abruptly. Verse 32. I don't know if it's up on the screen, but I'll read it. Uh, it was, this is the interactions between the father and the older son. Uh, verse 32. And it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Listen, this parable, there's no happy ending. I like happy endings. I, I'm sad when there's no happy endings. But it's by design. Because the challenge is thrown back to the Pharisees. Pharisees, are you going to be like the father? Or are you going to be like the older brother that I've unmasked you to be? So the challenge tonight that he made to the Pharisees is that, hey, listen, and the challenge for the church tonight is this. Let's not be deceived by sin. And let's also have a compassionate heart for those who are lost. Let's be like the Father. He's given us the gospel. We have visitation on Wednesday nights. Let's take the gospel and let's go out and reach. Because we may come to a door of a person who is like the younger prodigal. But we may come to a door who's like the the older, self-deceived older brother. But God's called us to witness to them. God's called us to share the gospel with them. So may we like... The, 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 the father of the prodigals. May we look and recognize, God, thank you for your mercy. But because of your mercy, I get to now go and practice that mercy with other people who need it as well. Yes.